Hey, hey, OCD fam. I'm so excited, I have to say. The leaves are changing here in the Midwest region of the United States, and we have this giant, giant pumpkin adorning the front porch. I mean, we are living our best fall lives. So cozy up because it's family time. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, so, you know what? I realized today that last week's episode actually fell on the last official day of summer. And so, I'm a happy camper because I really do love the fall season. I have to admit, though, I am not ready for the chasm of all the holidays to roll in just yet. I mean, it's a lot of work as a parent to create and manage all the things that can come with this time of year. So I am really on an intentional mission, y'all. I'm saying it here. I'm on a mission <laughs> to not get ahead of myself or just completely absorbed into the idea the expectation that I must do all the things and I'm trying to just slow down and focus and enjoy each day as it comes. So today, one of the major things that I am appreciating is that we are welcoming back a return guest here, fam, in Mike Hetty. Now, some of y'all may remember Mike because he really helped our family community learn more about inference-based CBT otherwise known as ICBT, and CBT being cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's one of our evidence-based treatments for OCD. And he played a really big role, I have to say, in helping break down some of the meteor chunks of that model so that we could really have a better working understanding for what it is, why it's a treatment, what the research says, you name it. So if you're newer to this podcast, fam, Another warm welcome to you, hey! And also just a heads up that you can always go back and check out any of our Season 1 episodes. Mike was here for a two-part episode talking about ICBT last December. Also, here in Season 2, we actually had one of the co-founders of ICBT on in Dr. Frederick Ardema. And he did a really great job also of helping us break down a very complicated but meaningful model for the treatment of OCD. So we have been really lucky. There's been a number of other practitioners talking about ICBT in addition to ERP, that's exposure and response prevention and medication, like we had last week with Dr. Ryan Vidrine. So what are we talking about today? Well, today... We're going to be talking about generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. And let me just preface this and say, well, I think this is a very interesting conversation. And I think many of our fellow practitioners may tune in to hear our thoughts and unpack and process along with us. This episode may also feel a bit cerebral. 
And so while I'm always mindful to add an application of how we can really distill and apply what we're talking about today in real life, I want to also take a minute here and share why I think this is a helpful conversation for families too, okay? Because here's the deal. One of the more recent stats that we've talked about throughout the podcast, I know NoCD does awareness around this stat, IOCDF, is that most OCD sufferers battle with their OCD for an average of 14 to 17 years, years from the start of symptoms until they actually access treatment. And that is a shocking amount of time. And many people, when they're here, they're like, what? That's crazy. But I can say for myself, 30 plus years before I realized my anxiety goes by a different name. And so often folks have lived with their distress for a minute or two, okay? And often that distress can manifest as anxiety, though honorable mentions for shame, disgust, irritation, depression, and that is just skimming the surface. I mean, distress can shapeshift and morph, y'all. But anxiety is a biggie. So much so that OCD used to be coded as an anxiety disorder in older editions of our diagnostic manual here in the States. So anxiety can play a significant role for folks and families suffering from OCD. And I'll just speak for myself here, but I'm pretty open about my discovery to understanding I had and have OCD. And though I would argue that it's at a subclinical level now, meaning that it's still there because, surprise, my brain is still here, thankfully. (laughs) But it's not interfering with my overall functioning, and I'm pretty wise to it in its tricks at this point. So I can honestly say it doesn't trip me up very often anymore. But y'all, y'all, that hasn't always been the case. And for many, many years, my OCD lived by another name, by generalized anxiety. And though I was an accomplished overachiever, um, perfectionist, yeah, in managing my anxiety with all my beautiful tools, oh, the tools I had, what I missed was how my tools were actually functioning to minimize, neutralize, or avoid the dread associated with the risks I imagined more than just managing my anxiety. So I lived for many, many years, fairly anxious, but very functional, because, you know, I was going for all the gold stars, as we uh, perfectionists tend to do. And even after I started treating, training, and working toward a specialization in OCD, I still didn't recognize that my anxiety was actually OCD masquerading by a different name. So learning and gaining insight into that, holy cow, y'all, holy cow, I actually had OCD this whole time, and that allowed me to utilize ERP, and then as I learned, thanks to Mike and many others, ICBT, as well as leaning in, humbling myself to go, it's okay, to use medication support, wow. For the first time ever, I can really attest that my life has been changed because of it. It didn't change who I am. I'm still my overachieving, recovering perfectionist self. I am still facing challenges. I still have my brain. It hasn't changed who I am. But learning and treating the OCD instead of just accepting and maintaining this great little incubator for my purported anxiety has brought immense freedom in my life. 
And y'all, it's not just me. I've seen this for clients too. I've seen how the known frenemy that has been anxiety for so long has been transformed into now an unwelcomed guest once that con man is exposed and OCD has been revealed. We've learned this magician's trick. So I went from thinking about OCD and generalized anxiety, which we refer to as GAD or G-A-D in the field. So you'll hear that over the course of Mike and I's chat together. And a demarcation that I'll note is we're not just talking about anxiety, but we're talking about that generalized anxiety that can start interfering with a person's functioning. I went from thinking about these two diagnoses, OCD and GAD, as really being these separate presentations to being the same sort of beast, just varied in scale and form, but more or less the same, just a different degree, right? So this has been a bit of a debate that has and can come up between practitioners. And again, great for practitioners. Why does that matter to me or you just trying to live our everyday best fall lives, right? Again, I think it does matter because, well, I could live every day with the weight of what I called anxiety for most of my life, and I did a pretty good job of it. You could have never told me, let alone convinced me, nada, that I could be where I am today, that I could have freedom from the immeasurable weight anxiety used to hold by resolving reasoning errors by preventing responses to compulsions, by trusting my doctor and starting an SSRI. It's really indescribable, the difference. So through the course of resolving my inferential confusion and and it brought freedom that I didn't even know was possible. And I believe that there's freedom. That's why I do what I do. That's why I'm a therapist. So I think it matters, not just for us practitioners having a conversation, but I, I've experienced that in a very real way. So I'm grateful and I'm thankful for Mike because he's going to come in here and I'm coming from that position of I used to see these as different things. Now I see it as one and the same. And Mike, on the other hand, comes from a alternative perspective, which I'll let him share more about. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. But first, let me just create some introductions for our newer fam, just a little bit more about who Mike is and what he brings to our family table here. So Mike Hetty, LCPC, is the co-owner and co-director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland, where he has specialized in the treatment of OCD, anxiety disorders, and related conditions for the last 15 years. He's a faculty member of the International OCD Foundation's Training Institute and a regular presenter at annual conferences for IOCDF and ADAA. That's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. He provides regular consultation to therapists and has produced numerous professional webinars on topics related to OCD treatment, as well as trainings in exposure and response prevention and in inference-based CBT. He has appeared on several podcasts, ours included, but a number of friends and colleagues' podcasts as well discussing shame, intimacy, perfectionism, and other OCD-related issues. Additionally, we can add co-chair to his list of accomplishments because he, along with OCD family friend and colleague Bronwyn Schroyer, LCSW, are co-chairs of a new ICBT special interest group, 
which we uh, at times can refer to as a SIG. So if you're like, what's a SIG? It stands for Special Interest Group. And that SIG is being formed through the International OCD Foundation. And so I'm going to put more information. You can find out more about that SIG at iocdf.org. And I'm going to give a link for that, as well as other links where you can learn and hear more about Mike over on this episode's blog post over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. Also, we're going to have such a dense conversation that we're going to continue we're going to continue it forward next week as well. And so we're going to touch on the SIG a bit more next week too. So certainly please come back and join us for that. But without further ado, let's dive in, fam. So, Mike, I have to tell you, welcome back. It's so good to have you back with the OCD family community. And I have to say, and my clients will bring up to me sometimes, but I've heard feedback. I'm sure you get this feedback a lot. People are like, I really enjoy listening to Mike. You have like a soothing cadence to your voice. And it, it's great because then people want to hear more. Thanks for having me. I have gotten that feedback before. Someone commented once that I should do an audio book of mindfulness activities or something like yes. that. And, uh, Act nice. people would love to have you do some guided meditations. Absolutely. The call map is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we are glad that you're here today. And this is actually, I've been excited about this conversation, which tells you how fun I am. But we're going to be talking about OCD, of course, and we're going to also be talking about generalized anxiety disorder. And so I think this is an important topic for discussion because a lot of people who do experience anxious distress, which can certainly be a byproduct, and also comorbid with OCD, tend to start asking that question when they zoom out, like, where's the line? Where's the line between I'm just kind of feeling some anxiety and that's my brain braining in that way? And when is it more a matter of OCD. And so part of the reason we're having this discussion is because the more I've learned about OCD and I've gone to talks at conferences at the IOCDF and other conferences, what is the difference between OCD and GAD? The more I zoom into it, the more I'm like, I don't know that it is a difference as much as a spectrum of different things, even though OCD is now technically not even coded as an anxiety disorder within the DSM-5. And so we're going to talk about this today, and I can't wait to really get into the meat of this conversation, because I think it's going to be helpful not only for us to process it, but just for my own conceptualization, for your own conceptualization, there's, there's an important thing that happens when we communicate, even if we don't agree. And so you and I are coming in on different sides of this issue, and would love to hear a little bit of your journey and experience with differentiating GAD and OCD? I'm happy to, to go down my own journey and my own perspectives, obviously influenced by the people who have trained me and, and mentored me. And I think what, what I find interesting, I don't know if anyone else finds interesting what I find interesting, is that I, ended, I started on one side and I ended up on the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious to see where I end up later. But for now, I do think that there's a good reason to keep them separate. As we get into the conversation, we'll, we'll, we'll realize that like these, these lines, these demarcation lines that we, we call diagnoses in the world of psychology are very permeable, yeah. right? 
and the the textbooks the not the textbooks but the, the the diagnostic manuals we have they look very like this is what it is and this is what it's not and you can't diagnose x when it's actually diagnosis y but a lot of these are like flexible suggestions about <laughs> about what a disorder is and isn't because there's no blood test for this stuff it's not like you know you're going to do a cheek swab and be like oh it's gad not ocd right right so we we are we are influenced by the criteria which gets updated i mean prior to 1980 mm -hmm. right so we're in dsm2 mm -hmm. prior to 1980 which is very different sorry just i just want to jump in and be like different very different oh like yeah where, From, where, where we are now yeah right yeah i mean dsm3 was the first one that was supposed to be a theoretical right it wasn't about freud I'm going to disagree about the atheoretical part because if you look at the definition of obsessions, it's clearly informed by a particular theory. But it was largely less theory-driven in DSM-3, so after 1980 when DSM-3 came out. But prior to that, GAD was uh, it, it sort of connected with panic disorder and called anxious neuroses, mm -hmm. right? And then they, they, they broke it out and called it GAD in 1980. And so the evolution of diagnoses is interesting and the criteria is interesting and my larger point is that these lines are, are permeable, mm -hmm. yet presented as, as you know, clearly and distinguishably different. Right, definitive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and so let's let's start with talking about what OCD is, what GAD is, per the current version of the DSM. And I also want to bridge to the broader international community. A lot of times these are going to coincide with, as determined by who, the ICD, what is it, 10 or 11 now? I should know, but I just do the billing codes now at this point, so I just, whatever. But the DSM is specific within, again, North America and, and the U.S. We really like to come up with our own systems, and it usually aligns. But there's been some big changes over the years in terms of how things are coded or understood or how conditions or just pieces of people's personality or pro their way of processing the world. It has been labeled as disordered and then it's not. And so there's there's been a lot of monumental changes across the DSMs. But when we're talking about OCD, so we'll start there because, you know, we're the OCD fam. When we look at OCD, there's about four trademarks. And I'm not going to say it in pure clinical language because I think it gets boring. And, and for clinicians, we need to know this. But for the broader community, it has the hallmark of obsessions. So these thoughts, feelings can be sounds sometimes, images that are intrusive in nature. It's all written very ERP, but that are causing a lot of distress. You have the compulsions, which can be your safety behaviors. They can be actual uh, manifestations of, of routines, rituals. And they can also just be mental processes, these mental rituals or these mental compulsions. There's, there can be a, a very, very vast way of, of these compulsions showing up because our brains are creative. And I'm never surprised when I hear a new one. I'm like, that's a new one, but it's a new one. Like our creative brains come up with things. It has to take up a certain amount of time for you, which is tricky for people sometimes because the thought goes and passes, right? And so when we do something like a Y box or a Psy box, which are some of our measures within the evidence-based practice world here of being able to rate the severity and how much dysfunction this is bringing and impairment it can be bringing to one's life, 
it has to take up at least an hour a day per the DSM. And because it's intermittent in, in and out of people's conscious awareness, it's really hard sometimes for folks to gauge like whether they're thinking about something for an hour accumulatively or eight hours or whatnot. And then it also has to stick around for a while, right? And it has to be causing distress, the impairment piece, right? And so we can have things that kind of bug us or whatnot, but they're not like keeping us up at night. If it is keeping you up at night, if it is causing so much distress that you may need to stop working or get an accommodation for work or fear that if you don't have the accommodation, you're not going to make it. Now we're talking about it really feeding into your could be work functioning, school functioning, social functioning, living, all of that. And so when we're looking at OCD, those are some of the kind of hallmark pieces. Would you add anything to that from the framework of the DSM? No, I mean, they go into a little bit more qualitative descriptions of what things are, but yeah. it, it's not, yeah, the, the phenomena of OCD that we have called a disorder is obsessions and compulsions, and they have defined what obsessions and compulsions are, like at a minimum. At a minimum, it must be this. And if it's not that, then maybe we don't call it obsessions or compulsions, right? Like it might be something else. And again, I'm fine with it, right? Like you, you can hear like, their description of the phenomena of obsession mm -hmm. involves the word intrusive. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's probably fair to say prior to like 1977 or eight, they didn't use those words right. to describe it as such, certainly not in a codified way in a diagnostic manual it has to be intrusive. Well, that's a cognitive appraisal word. Right. Right. And they didn't talk about classically conditioned, which would be a behavioral word. So it can be a classically conditioned response to, right, a fear association to something like they didn't pick that model. They picked a different one to go with. And again, descriptively, it's fine. Right. Right. But, but it's influenced by, by a particular way of understanding a phenomena. Right. So what initially was a cluster of different symptoms, then you get a certain way of conceptualizing what that looks like. And now you see that framework. And instead of focusing sometimes on the cluster of symptoms, we get really zoomed into how does that fit within our infrastructure for understanding this disorder. And so it, there certainly is a piece of that going on with OCD and other, and other disorders too. I mean, this is part of medical model period, right? Like we can, we can get into that. And so that's kind of an overview roughly. <laughs> of uh, OCD and for generalized anxiety. So generalized, because I conceptualize them so much the same, uh, I will say if my bias leaks out, <laughs> you, you can be like, yo, girl, stop that. Um, but I, I have a hard time with this one because this honestly, and I don't know about for you, Mike, now that you're co-director at an anxiety center, right? An OCD and so you're going to get a lot of people coming in directly for that. But even before, and I'm not sure how long you've been there, or how long you've been in the specific specialty of OCD, a lot of practitioners tend to have certain diagnoses that they favor. Not that they think everything is that, but they generally do well with treating that. The word of mouth, the buzz in the community, the appreciation from your colleagues. 
starts to build a reputation of like, oh, they're really good with anxiety or they're really good with this. They're really good with that. And so, well, absolutely, a professional has to do their due diligence and ruling out and doing a good diagnostic evaluation. A lot of people do get to certain niches, whether they specialize in it or not. If we were to take 10 clients and say, how many of these clients are, you know, dealing with this? Probably seven or, or more, right? And so I know that GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder, GID, however you want to say it, is it definitely was one of my diagnoses that I treated often, often. And so it's been a real learning experience coming into the OCD world. But let's talk about what are we thinking when we're conceptualizing GAD? Again, from kind of the DSM perspective as we're trying to differentiate it based on those lines for now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so like the, if you did the overview of OCD, I'll do the overview of, of GAD real quick. Sure. Which is excessive worry, anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think they separate those two out. Um, they do. Uh, anxiety right, um, and worry. Yep. Anxiety and worry. I think there's a time period, six months maybe. I don't yes. have a DSM in front. More um, or less, more days than not for at least six months. Yeah. Right. It occurs often in, a, in, in a various areas of, of living, right? So career, so the worries especially, right? It can happen about health, career, relationships, money, it, it goes across a bunch of different things. I don't think the word unproductive is in the DSM, but it's largely accepted by the anxiety experts that, that the worry itself is not a productive kind of worry. It's an unproductive, i.e. pathological, uh, unhelpful kind of worry. And I think there's other criteria. There's a somatic criteria. Mm -hmm. Adults and kids have a different number they have to meet. I think it's for adults, it's two, two or three somatic complaints. And... Yeah, and only one yeah. I think is is what it needs to be for kids. Like okay, yeah, yeah, and a difficulty controlling it, right? Which goes to the pathological part. This is the worry right. is very difficult to control. It's excessive. It's it's unproductive. It, it's it, it runs sort of pervasively across different aspects of your of your life and your experience. Mm -hmm. And that's about it, right? Like it it's an incredibly ambiguous disorder, right? It's broad. Right. It's like, have, have you met anyone with a disorder who didn't have a somatic complaint? You right. know, if you were to ask, Hey, do you get, uh, in, in the course of your struggling with this, do you ever happen to get stomach upset? And, you know, do you ever, do you ever get headaches and difficulty sleeping, Acid restlessness, yeah, muscle GI tension? Yeah. It's sort of like, really? Okay. But that's why it's not the only criterion, right? It's just one of, one of a few. So that's GAD. I don't know if we want to jump into how it is that you're like, I kind of see them the same because that's where I started. Yeah. Well, so I didn't see them the same when I started out in my career. And I think a favored diagnosis, especially with kind of green therapists, just kind of building their, their chops and gaining more experience is if there's some worry there, maybe it's GAD, unless it's like within the last six months, or we can say there's an obvious thing, then it's an adjustment disorder with anxiety or with mixed presentation of anxiety and depression or things like that. And so I think that, yeah, it started off really generally. But even as you're going through 
the the overall description the excessive worry it's difficult to control the worry right and the you have some somatic pieces that can show up there's also some verbiage in the dsm-5 i'm gonna i wrote it down because i was like oh man i mean as i zoomed in i was just like this isn't helping me differentiate it any more than where i started apprehensive expectation that was the word i was like oh is there so there's anticipatory worry anticipatory worry worry about things that are coming in the future get out of here so as i was reading through that i was just like yeah when I started, it was hard to see OCD in that because there was this caricature that OCD is washing your hands and crossing through thresholds eight times. But it's like it's something where I had the conceptualization of we need to see a physical manifestation with, I don't know, contamination based worries and concerns. That's my idea of OCD. It's a slide in a psychopathology class. It's a slide in a psychopharm class. It's not, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions. If anything, people use it as a quirk or a preference or a way to express they like to be organized. And so I didn't differentiate it. But as I started learning more about OCD, I realized I've traded OCD for a very large portion of my career where I, I conceptualized it as GAD. And so I think just learning about OCD, I started to go, well, when is it GAD then, truly? So I think I started there, too, because I was like, wait a minute, uh, as I'm, as I'm uh, actually getting a better working understanding of how OCD functions, and I think it's important, function is going to be a theme here, of looking at the functionality, but like, when is this not OCD? So yeah, let's talk there, because you said you used to be on that side of the argument as well. Not that we're arguing, but the discussion. And so I would love to hear what that process was like for you. Sure, sure. And before I jump into there, I, I will add on to what you said. We're going to really look at function. But I also think that where the real distinction lies isn't going to be so much in the function, but in, in the description of the phenomena, right? Like how we are understanding its definition, how we're conceptualizing an obsession is where I think the distinction's going to lie between OCD obsessions and GAD worries. But where I started, to answer an older question that you had, you didn't know how long I'd been in the field since uh, OCD works since uh, 2007. Okay. Um, OCD and anxiety works since 2007. So it's been a bit. And I was mentored by names people might recognize. Hopefully they do. I certainly do. Sally Winston, yeah. uh, Carl, Carl Robbins, and people who I was sort of around their orbit at the time who had similar, you know, Marty Seif, who had similar ideas about, you know, the distinctions between worrying and obsessing. And so where I started was that GAD and OCD were actually differences of degree, mm-hmm. not differences of kind, meaning that they're on a continuum of the same thing. Right. They're Right. Where, where there might be a severity difference, right? People see, would... And I would agree, OCD is more severe than GAD. It's more impactful to one's life. It's more disabling, if you will, than GAD tends to be, right? So, and I'll agree with that. But when we start looking at like, what are the meaningful and convincing ways to distinguish these two diagnoses? Mm -hmm. 
I wasn't finding a lot of compelling distinctions, right? So here are the, the typical distinctions, right, that we used to have before DSM-5 in 2013, that worries are about everyday life things and obsessions are more bizarre. We've removed that. Right. DSM-5 said obsessions do not have to be bizarre, uh, bizarre right? Um, they, you know, or they don't have to, they, you can't exclude it if they're about everyday things. No, obsessions can be about everyday things. We know this by working with clients, right? Right. So that's gone. That somehow GAD doesn't involve compulsive responding, right? And now our understanding of mental compulsions, right, is going, well, private mental acts attempting to escape, control, and neutralize the distress caused by the preceding experience, stimulus, whatever it was, is compulsive. Right. Okay. So we could look at GAD as sort of a pure O, if you will, where it's, it's, you know, where it's a, it's a what if question, there's the worry, and then there's the attempt to neutralize control, escape through answering said question, right? And that, that would be the verb worrying. So that's how I was understood it. There's the worry, then there's the worrying. And this comes from, at least for me, it comes from Sally and Carl and Marty. And I agree, it, it made so much sense to me. It just fit right. It's like, yeah, I've never met someone with GAD who didn't have this urge to respond in this mental way. Unproductive, right? Takes up a lot of time, causes distress. So I'm like, okay, so these things feel quite similar. And, you know, within even the last, I'd say, two or two and a half years, I've done IOCDF conference presentations, making the argument that I think they're the same thing, that they're differences of degree and not kind. And I do think I made a fairly cogent argument because I had a lot of really intelligent people sort of helping me look at it from that perspective. So that's where I started. I think that, that they're the same. They're on a continuum. And I think you can make a good argument for that. Well, and let me ask you this, because we've created some conversation in the neuroforming therapy realm of doing a better job of understanding a spectrum, a continuum as not just a linear getting from point A to point B and you're somewhere along the shades of gray hair between the two, the two outliers. But like in when we look at autism, for example, we like to look at that spectrum more as almost like a pie graph, a pie chart where we have different levels, kind of like sound waves that are going to vary within an individual person and across people. And so when we think of a continuum, even for something for anxiety, the reason why I think it's important to even understand how we're conceptualizing the continuum is because a lot of times, whether it's in research and charting and, and all that data analysis, we're not having continuums that look like that. We're kind of having an up and to the right effect or down. It's either going up, it's going down. Uh, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. It's the intensity level. And so when you talk about that continuum, because I think about how that obsession is coming about or how the obsession is playing out or how that anxiety, the worry and the worrying as different kind of pieces within the pie chart, different levels that can fluctuate. How are you thinking about when you say a continuum? And it may be like really zooming into the verbiage, but I think that as we think about it and as, as particularly as we're starting to understand autism better in that way, it would be helpful 
at least for me, to kind of think of how you're conceptualizing that. The primary way of conceptualizing continuum in this context is in severity, mm-hmm. right? And and by that we can we can elaborate on what that even means. Severity could be the the degree of intrusiveness you've experienced, if you will, right? If we're using that appraisal uh, model explanation of of obsessions, how intrusive does it feel? How unwanted does it feel? I think GAD worries might feel less intrusive than obsessions, right? Mm-hmm. Again, that that's descriptive. That's idiosyncratic, client to client, and also sort of the degree of dysfunction it would cause in your day-to-day life. OCD is on the more severe side, right? And even within OCD, we get severity ranges, right? right? So we can have someone who has very mild OCD, very not as impactful in their in their functioning, right? And then very severe. And I think we can have pretty severe GAD that is hard to distinguish from OCD and very mild GAD. So when we're talking about continuum, I'm mostly, mostly talking about different ways of defining severity of symptoms, severity of the descriptive impairment it has on someone's daily functioning. And so I don't find that to be a good way to separate out diagnoses, right? In the right. sense where it's like, well, because this is more severe, it's a different diagnosis. That doesn't seem to track. I don't think many people would agree with that. It's a sloppier way of separating things out. Right. Um, otherwise, we'd have like 10 forms of OCD, right? It'd be like different diagnoses based on the different Y box scores, we, which we don't do. Right. Yeah. So that's what I mean by that. Yeah. Thank you. You can have this severe presentation of GAD. And when it is a severe presentation, I think more justification can even get applied and go in on on saying, well, is this really GAD? Because look to the level that it is. There is this conception that GAD maybe not from the broader treatment community, but at least from my experience and talking with some colleagues within our field of seeing OCD as more severe. And it's not to say or minimize that the GAD can be very difficult, but OCD is its own little monster within that. And so parsing out the differences just on intensity alone feels pretty tricky because that's not going to diagnostically give you different information. But why does it matter if we treat the symptoms that the client's coming in with? And I would argue that it matters because some of the evidence-based practices, even within cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, that could help bring about progress in GAD, could also serve to function as a higher level compulsion for OCD if we're going in and kind of fanning the flame or learning how to avoid. Avoidance comes up a lot around GAD as well. And so I think it gets tricky, which obviously, as you're saying, like we can't just determine by severity ratings. And for folks that don't don't know the Y box, Y box, these measures for the obsessive compulsive scale out of Yale Brown do give us numbers in terms of of severity. And so, yeah, we wouldn't be able to guide treatment simply by the data that they have a certain Y box score. And so it's an important piece. Our data is important to know, to be able to gauge, to get some baseline, to understand progress or lack thereof. But there's more to it. The idea that a treatment that would be more, say, more cognitive for a GAD intervention if used for OCD, could become compulsive. Again, it's it's 
anything can become compulsive, right? I've seen True. exposures become compulsive, Certainly, right? Yeah. And so I think it, it, you have to take good care with any treatment model that OCD could misuse it and create a problem. That alone doesn't help distinguish it, right? Treatments, especially ones that were designed to treat, say, phobias and anxiety disorders, a part of OCD is anxiety. So part of it is an anxiety issue, not the whole thing, which is why it has its own chapter now. It's not just an anxiety disorder, but ERP was designed to treat phobias. Mm -hmm. And then it was applied to obsessions and compulsions and it had success. Mm -hmm. And so the treatment model, the treatment things themselves, CBT, ACT, they, they can't distinguish disorders because Right. So, because they don't tell us anything about the phenomena we're trying to treat, really. Right. And so that's where I think the differences lie. So, if I can recap real quick, is yeah. when we try to, when I have tried to sort of say, are the differences convincing between GAD and OCD? Are they meaningful? Past Mike, pre, you know, pre pandemic Mike would have said, the, there's not a convincing distinction in obsession versus worry as it's listed in the DSM. Mm hmm. Right, and DSM five in particular, there's that's not a convincing way to separate it. It's a sloppy way to separate it, in my opinion, mm -hmm. for whatever that's worth. So, there's complications around using that. Oh, then we can bump to compulsions and say, oh, GED doesn't have compulsions. I would disagree. Maybe you don't call them compulsions because that's reserved for OCD. Again, that's a semantic argument. Do people engage in behaviors, mental or behavioral, to neutralize, escape, right? To, mm -hmm. to the experience, the stimulus that preceded it. Yeah, in GAD, I've never seen it not do that. So compulsions aren't a reliable way, the presence, to, to distinguish the two. Treatment models and how you apply treatment and what works and what doesn't work isn't a reliable way to distinguish it. So what is? And so old Mike would say, severity, but that's not good. Mm -hmm. So what? Maybe they're just the same thing. Again, difference of degree, not difference of kind. And then... <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I had a moment of humility smacking me in the face a few times where I said, huh, when you look at it this way, you see something different. Do you remember, I think you and I are close to the same age, back when malls were a thing. You'd go to a mall, there'd be like a little kiosk set up and it was like this picture where if you looked at it, it just looked like a bunch of like dots that formed like an image mm -hmm. right and you're like oh look that's a that's an interesting piece of art uh -huh. and then the person selling it said hey if you actually get in really close and then focus on this one point and then uh -huh. back you actually becomes, see a sailboat becomes 3d yeah <laughs> right yeah right and and so there's an image hidden in an image but you wouldn't know to see it unless you were told how to look at it hang on i just I appreciate the analogy because I can, I'm guessing where you're going with this. Okay. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. So, and this is what happened to me was we, we cannot escape how we look at something when we are told to look at it from a particular way of conceptualizing it. So how our model teaches us to look at something is how we looked at it. Mm -hmm. So when you learn ERP, CBT, appraisal model of obsessions in particular, how an obsession is defined. Right, an intrusive, unwanted thought that causes distress, that is ubiquitous, that 80 plus percent of people in the world experience, but only some people have a particular kind of relationship to it that, that like alchemy, transfigures it into an obsession somehow. And there's some sort of secret magic happening here. 
and only with certain intrusive thoughts that cause you distress, not with all intrusive thoughts that cause you distress. So I think if you looked at the picture from that angle, you see one scene. Right. And that's what it looks like. And that's how certain you are it is because you see it. It makes sense. How could it be anything else? Mm -hmm. Look, I can see it. Can't you see it? Mm -hmm. So, but then someone might come along and say, there's another way of looking at it. Like if you tilt your head to the left and you zoom in a little bit and you, do you see something else? And you're like, holy crap, I do. I see something else. And so for me, I'd like to introduce this for the listeners and for you, an example I've used a lot, but I think it's good. That might just be because I came up with it and I'm proud of it, but it also might be good. So I'll, I'll walk you through a quick story that highlights the differences I'm proposing here. Okay. And as if I made this up, I didn't create the differences. I'm just, I created the, the example. Okay. So I want you to imagine that I went to my doctor a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. primary care, preventative medicine. I'm a good patient. I go every year and I go and my doctor, I, I, you know, I don't feel any particular way about it. I do get white coat syndrome because I don't like them taking my blood pressure, but short of that, I wasn't anticipating anything negative. Mm -hmm. I go, oh, my doctor does everything my doctor normally does. Like they weigh you and they say, shame, shame, shame. You weigh more than you should. And then they give me this gown that says it should fit me and it never fits me. So, you know, we're sitting there in the sort of awkwardness of being mostly naked and waiting an inordinate amount of time for the doctor to come. The doctor comes, does everything the doctor does. And then as they're poking around your neck, I presume looking for thyroid or bumps or whatever, the doctor says, oh, hmm, that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And then they bring your hand up and they feel, what, there's a bump here. Do you feel that? Yeah, I feel that. That shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you're like, well, tell me more. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to do blood work. That'll tell us a lot more, but why don't we preempt and just go ahead and order some tests? One of those tests could be a biopsy, mm -hmm. right? It's pretty, pretty simple procedure, minimally, minimally painful. And that'll tell us a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. So doctor orders a biopsy. I go to the technician and they say, Hey, is this the bump? And I say, yeah, that's the bump. And they, you know, they take the biopsy, they send it off to a pathology lab and I'm, I'm told I'll find out in a few days what the results are. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment, what is my what if? What if you have cancer? What if, you know, it's something terminal yeah. or whatever? What if I have cancer? And I think most people who are aware of what a biopsy means arrive at the exact same doubt, the exact same what if, the exact same thought. And I would argue that that is what you should have arrived at, mm -hmm. right? That your reasoning process worked quite well. Right. That there was a bump. The doctor found it. The doctor was concerned enough to order a biopsy. The biopsy technician found it. You felt it. A pathologist is evaluating it. It literally is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Until I get it back, it could be or it could not be cancerous. Mm -hmm. This is worry. Right. Now, what do I do between now and the seven or eight days it takes me to get my results? I could just say, hey, I'll find out. I'm a little uncomfortable lose a little sleep, but ultimately I wait, mm -hmm. right? Or I go onto Google, I go onto Reddit, I go onto, Reddit. I go Tumblr. talking to, to, yeah, I go anywhere I can. Uh -huh. I imagine what could come. I imagine having to prepare for my funeral and how to talk to everyone in my life about me dying of cancer. And I, I don't sleep very much. And I just come up a complete shell of myself for several days, mm -hmm. uh, all of which I would say could be 
appearing compulsive. Mm -hmm. But this is what I would call normal doubt, as ICBT calls it, normal doubt, or worry, where mm -hmm. the problem isn't the doubt. The problem isn't the what if. That what if is completely reasoned. Right. You should have come to that what if. Right. The problem was how you responded to it. Mm -hmm. So this is part one, right? This is where I think if we're going to make a distinction between diagnosis of GAD and OCD, that is a GAD worry, mm -hmm. right? The way I responded to it was the problem, not the worry what if thought itself. Now let's move forward. In true fashion, my doctor has said, do not read the results because you're going to get an alert in your chart online and don't read it. Let me read it for you. And of course, you just completely disregard that because you're a nervous wreck. Mm -hmm. And you open it up and the chart or the form, whatever you want to call it, the test says your name and all the boring stuff, right? Name, date of birth, who your doctor is, who took your sample, who analyzed the sample. Fundamentally, the sample was, drum roll please, benign. Yay. And instead of sighing relief and mm -hmm. dancing and celebrating, you say, but what if they switched the labs? Could it be that these aren't my results? You know, I've heard of this before. I've heard where people had thought that they had no disease, no, no cancer. And it turned out they did because there was an error somewhere along the line that it could be, it's not, it's not impossible that they messed up. You know, there's actually that, I think it was like a 2020 episode years ago where they, they, they investigated how doctors have actually accidentally removed the wrong limbs or operated on the wrong side of the body. Mm -hmm. simply because the doctor, quote, felt it was the right side of the body to work on. Mm -hmm. Humans make human errors. There was a time in which my dad tried to have a prescription filled at the pharmacy and it was the wrong medicine, mm -hmm. right? So all of these reasons that I put together and the consequences of mm -hmm. if, the, if, the, if the lab was wrong, now I go, well, it could be that my, that this isn't even my lab. I should go get another biopsy mm -hmm. just to be sure, because it's probably not going to mess it up twice. Is this the same kind of what if doubt as the first one? No. Right? They are qualitatively different. Right. Right? And this is obviously more in line with OCD doubting, right? right? Which is that I had all the reason in the world to trust this conclusion that I don't have cancer. And then my mind found a way to say I could, right? And it justified it in numerous ways, but it wasn't coming from the lab. The justification wasn't coming from the lab or from my doctor or someone telling me, whoops, we switched your results. Here's your real results. None of that is where I got my conclusion from. I got it from what could be, what hypothetically might be my imagination. And this is where I think we learned something very interesting about how to separate out a worry from an obsession. So let's, let's pause there and see if there's any questions or anything. Yes. I've been making notes over on my side. So for folks that are more familiar with ICBT, you're going to be tracking this and say, yeah, it's not in your here and now evidence that you do have cancer when you, that's actually to the contrary, you've gotten the benign lab results. And this is a piece of the inferential confusion. And if you're more familiar with ICBT, you're going to probably hear it through that lens. For folks that are new to OCD altogether or have been really involved in ERP treatment, this is they're going to track the analogy for sure on the whole process 
and the differentiation between more that normalized relative in-context worry versus that out-of-context worry that isn't based on the current evidence. But here's my question. So if in, in your example, the eight days between the time when you think you might have cancer and find out that you do or don't, right? You're feeling distressed. Does that mean it's OCD? No. And it's, and it's reasonable based on the here and no evidence because it could be cancer, right? And so that's okay to be upset by that and to be struggling with that. In fact, I would say it's normal and you're saying most people would come up to that conclusion, right? So if that's normal worrying, general worrying, where are we getting to the point of disordered worrying? Because it's contingent in this example of once I get the information and we make a big distinction about this in treatment, about, you know, when we're given information, whether we like it or not, we can accept that. That's one thing. When, when we're not accepting that and it leads us and propels us into more of the questioning, et cetera, that's more of that reassurance seeking versus information seeking. So it's like, what part of that isn't just normal? Of course, you're going to have a concern on that versus disordered because, right. yeah, well, that's maybe where some of the rub comes for me. Sure. Well, I think this gets into the problematic way we've been operationally defining worry thus far, right? Where there isn't a distinction between worry and worrying, mm-hmm. right? So what we might say is that worry becomes pathological when it becomes excessive, right? Well, what does that mean? It means it takes up time. It's unproductive. And so you could say that, that the person's, what if this is cancer? What if this is cancer? What if this is cancer is the repetition, the time constraints, the severity of its impact is where it becomes sort of diagnosably concerning, right? As opposed to someone who doesn't have a disorder at all and goes, wow, I'm upset, I'm distressed, but I'll I'll, I'll sleep it off, so to speak, and wait. So where does it enter the, the, the realm of pathology or problem or disorder when it becomes excessive? My perspective on this is that the what if this is cancer conclusion, right, where I reasoned with the information my doctor gave me and I concluded it could be cancer, but I can't know until I get more information. There's true uncertainty here. That what you do with that, how you respond to that is where it becomes problematic right? I would not make the case, nor would I agree, that the person is sitting around going, what if I have cancer? 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 In a way that is sort of just, I had a worried thought. That is worrying. It is what the metacognitive therapy people call perseverative mental action. I or mean, perseverative. Put, put that on your bingo card. <laughs> right? So, so, so the worrying, the verb, what I am tasking my mind to do with this experience of doubt is, for all intents and purposes, compulsive. Mm-hmm. It's most certainly a thing I'm doing, not a thing that's happening to me. Mm-hmm. And again, to the degree that this is even helpful to break this apart. So let's just say in a nutshell, it becomes a problem when it becomes excessive, when it becomes time consuming, when it creates a great deal of distress. I think that is largely and how one is responding to the what if rather than just having a series of what ifs intrude, right? It's how they're responding to what ifs. But that isn't how you define OCD, 
right? OCD is not defined by compulsions. Right. Right. OCD is defined by obsessions and compulsions. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's the it's the former that we wanna that we wanna sort of dive into. So yeah, does that answer the question? I can I can clarify well, more. It I I totally track what you're saying there, but also when we look at okay, so and you're describing what I believe the DSM four TR worded the verbiage was that impending sense of doom, right? <laughs> like that's uh that's a market trademark for, of of GAD. But what I'm thinking about because more days than not, six months. And again, maybe this is just like a a silly thing to zoom into. But in this situation, even if you get real distressed and how you get distressed and how that plays out can really like you can't even concentrate. You can't you have to take time off work. You're upset. You can't engage in your relationships as you normally would. You need your mom to come help with the kids because you're just so upset or whatever the thing. Right. Like even if it's getting to the point of interceding with your functioning, then when you find out, oh, thank God, it's not, it's not cancer, or you find out it is and it's upsetting, but now you're, you probably pivot or shift into what can I do to try to stay alive? What can I do to fight this kind of mode versus that uncertainty of could it be cancer or not? It resolves in that area. Now, generalized anxiety, we're going to expect it just as OCD, we're going to expect it to show up in more than one way. And part of what the context that you're describing is that it's in context with GAD, it's in context for the evidence right now. It's the relative doubt. It's the relative worry. And that sometimes even the act of doubting, because you've said to us here at the podcast before We've talked about this within the framework of doubt. Doubt the verb or doubt the people you will use that interchangeably as the feeling, right? And so you've made the distinguishing mark, which is a huge differentiation when we think about a model like and an upstream model like ICBT versus ERP. But in terms of like the functioning and how this is looking, I don't I, I still I, I feel like Yes, we can have these different one-offs in response to the stressor that is there in that moment. At what point does that exceed? Because excessive, I guess, is just such a subjective thing. So we start talking about, we started the talk today talking about how intensity isn't a great gauge for this. But really, the excessive, again, it's a similar, it's kind of a similar statement, right? What's excessive to you isn't going to be the same as what's excessive to me. Or sometimes we might agree, but it, it's going to vary person to person. It's going to vary within me based on the other things I'm thinking and feeling physiologically as well. Like how my threshold for dealing with shit is going to be a lot worse if I'm real tired, didn't sleep well last night and haven't eaten anything yet. Like my threshold for dealing with relative things in the here now is going to be different. And so I'm still, I'm still not, yeah, I'm not quite there yet. Do you, okay. yeah. What are your thoughts well, on that? Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing is, is that you agree that the, the two doubts are different in my example. Yeah. Right. And that's meaningful that they're not semantically poetically or right. Or, or whatever different. Those are actual 
not just sort of meaningful functional differences in doubts. Those are empirical differences in mm -hmm. doubts. Mm -hmm. And so what your concern is, is that people who we would call GAD, pathological excessive worriers, that there's a time component, right? Six months. Mm -hmm. Let's say the person finds out that they don't have cancer in six days, mm -hmm. right? They're still going to be a worrier, mm -hmm. even though the cancer thing resolved, right? There is no qualitative criterion that says one must worry about a single thing for six months. Mm -hmm. It's it's that they are worrying as a process, mm -hmm. right? They're engaged in excessive worrying across domains. So they're the kind of person who sees value in worry, the kind of person who, who thinks worry is helpful and functional, right? And so here's another useful distinction. It doesn't come from ICBT in particular, it comes from the metacognitive therapy people, which is that people who worry often have a almost egocentric relationship to the worrying. They have what we call positive beliefs about it, that it means I'm virtuous, that it means I'm careful, that it means I'm thoughtful, that it's preventative, that it works, that it's necessary. We don't see these with obsessions and we don't see these with compulsions, right? Most people would agree that the compulsive is not need, the compulsion was not needed, but they, they feel urged to do it anyway, mm -hmm. right? And they certainly don't think the obsession is at all egocentric, right? It's completely egodystonic. So there's another distinguishing factor there in sort of one's relationship to the worrying. So I'm making the distinction because I think it's, it's more useful that worrying itself is a deliberate mental processing that people learn to use across domains to try to escape uncertainty, to try to escape distress from distressing questions. Mm -hmm. Right. What if you have cancer? What if this? What if the other? What if you, you know, what if you lose your house? That the worry itself, as long as it's in context, as long as it's prompted by the reality of the present moment, that itself isn't the pathology. The pathology is, is how you respond to it. And how you respond to it in GAD is almost always private, mental, perseverative, unproductive mental processing. Right. And so, in that, I would say that the worrying doesn't have to be just about your health. It can be about all manner of domains of living. The six-month criteria for time is about worrying, not about what you were worrying on. Mm -hmm. So how you, have you been a worrier like this in an excessive way for six months or more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? Most people say their entire life. They are Olympic-level worriers, right? The Michael <laughs> Phelps of worry. And so... To me, that isn't a that that doesn't help distinguish OCD from GAD, except for the fact that OCD is egodystonic almost entirely, and a, a GAD has a strong egosyntonic component to that. Does that help? It helps, but I'm thinking about this. Let's let's use a more. I mean, I like the analogy with the I like the example we're using, but it's a little more concrete because you can either feel the lump or not and whatnot. Let's let's look at something like relationship OCD or GAD in a relationship. What if this isn't right? So dating in and of itself is this process, right, of connecting with another person. You may have 
different motivations on wanting to connect with that person. But ultimately, if you keep dating, it's one of those things where you're trying on that relationship scene. Is this a good fit? Do I want to marry this person or do I want to buy a house? Do we want to get a dog? Whatever the thing is, right? And so you're looking at this relationship. And we could argue that, say, you come from a divorced family that's pretty common. A lot of people that grew up in a divorced family will say, I don't love that for me or anyone else. I don't want to get divorced, right? So I could worry. I may have that prerequisite worry of relationships could be tricky. Certainly was for my parents. So I want to be careful and measured in this. Now, from an ROCD, a relationship OCD perspective, there can be a lot of concern whether we move forward or break up that it was the wrong choice, it was the wrong decision. But I think a person, an insight is impacted pretty, pretty square on when it comes to OCD. It's not that you can't have insight. But I think some folks would argue that it feels aligned with their values of after growing up in a difficult situation to not want to get divorced. That is a normal thing based on the experience they have. Now, we would say from the OCD perspective, or we may say this is a, this is really truncating it down into a example, so there's more to it. But we would also look at, you know, it's that fear of what if, even if I'm in a good relationship, all the evidence says, I really like this person. I like hanging out with them. I like to think about them, all this. Or they're an asshole and we broke up. Thank goodness. But what if I made a mistake? From the OCD perspective, the ego dystonic part comes in where you're like, but I don't want to make a mistake here. What if this is or isn't the right relationship? However, dating as a whole, the whole thing is is this or isn't this the right relationship, right? And just because you get married or get a house or get a dog or whatever doesn't take away the question of, yep, for sure, it is because we've got a piece of paper now that says it is or we've got a mortgage or we've got this or that, right? And so I think sometimes folks can get confused on, well, no, it is egocentric because I want to prevent... And I get from the OCD perspective, we hear words like prevent and we're like, okay, now we're like kind of living in the imaginal. But we can see how this could get tricky in operationalizing the process even of dating as, no, this is egocentric. This is why we date. We don't just marry any random person on the street. We get to know them first. This is normal relationship worry or concern versus something that can get obsessional. And so I think it can be really hard for people to draw that line because you and I also know from doing this work that a lot of the here and now evidence people will say, but I do have evidence. They're using a lot of different logic and personal experience and, and facts about statistics, about couples that stay together or not, that feels very evidentiary in the here and now to this relationship. And so I think I can appreciate it and I can get the distinctive difference, but I certainly have heard this feedback as people are wrestling with, with this kind of a normal thing, though. You want to not hurt the other person or yourself. You want to. You're going to have some worry. 
how I'm applying it is very relevant to what's happening right now. It's very at the service, they may say it functions, to make sure that they are really engaging in the right relationship. And so I think it can get it can get muddy, if you will, because though we have, it's much easier on the outside of it, if it's not your relationship, to have a little more of an objective and, and see where the egocentric values, egotistonic values are. But for somebody who has always conceptualized relationship in such a way, would we say this is normative, average, typical, Worrying that maybe in excess, causing some distress, maybe impairing even the dating relationship versus ROCD. Yeah. So ROCD is a messy idea in the first place, right? Because again, it's not like ROC, we invented that, right? Like we took something that looked like OCD because someone was doing what we called compulsions and persistent you know, what ifing, and we said, this is, this is OCD in which case, you know, again, painting with a really broad brush. If all I have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Mm -hmm. So the devil's in the details, at least as far as the value of distinguishing the two, right? Which is a whole separate conversation. Is there value in distinguishing the two? Well, presumably if it impacts treatment, Yeah. if someone's not getting better, maybe I'm treating something the wrong way. Right. So let's pretend like that's the case. Like we have a person and we've been saying, oh, I think this is OCD and they're not getting better. We might want to reevaluate whether or not we're actually treating OCD. And again, the devil is in the details here. A person who has a doubt or what if about the relationship, which we have to be laser focused on. We have to be very clear and concrete. What is your doubt? And then we need to establish, like anyone doing ICBT would establish, is how did this doubt get? constructed? How did you come to this conclusion? Mm -hmm. Right. And if the way you got to the conclusion was the way anyone would have gotten to this conclusion was normal, was based in reality, was based in relevant contextual evidence for you to doubt the relationship in such a way that is a problematic way, not just an abstract doubt. Like, could it be that one day I get divorced? Yeah, of course. Could it be that one day I get hit by a stray bullet? Yeah, mm -hmm. of course. That's not OCD. Right. So we want to zoom in on the particular doubting of the client, the particular presumed compulsive response that the client has. And we want to highlight what kind of doubt we have. If I can zoom out for a minute, because I don't want to get too lost inside of, of an example yeah. where it can get, again, we can stay muddy, right? I, I want, I want to, I want to try to get some clarity where it's valuable in the distinction of these two things. If, if we think of inferential confusion, which again is, is coming from the ICBT world. It is an empirical way of, of explaining a phenomena that we call obsession, right? And inferential confusion in a broad definition is a faulty reasoning process that leads to a conclusion. That's what reasoning does. It leads us to conclusions, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that a compass leads us or guides us to a destination. Right. Now it happens to be an OCD. The conclusion is to doubt something when you shouldn't have. Again, right. this is coming from the ICBT inferential confusion words, but I think even the, the CBT ERP people would agree the compulsions weren't needed. The obsessions aren't true. Yeah. Right. Everyone agrees on that. So, so ICBT says what got you there was this process called inferential confusion. It was faulty. 
So if your compass is faulty, for whatever reason, you're, you're in the woods, but there's a power plant a half a mile away and it's creating a magnetic field and it's creating a false north where you end up isn't the destination you were looking for. Right. Because the compass is faulty. So if the compass is faulty, your destination is faulty. If the reasoning process leads you to a conclusion and the process of reasoning was faulty, the conclusion was faulty. So the devil is in the details. Right. So if someone's doubting the relationship, I want to know if their compass was broken. Right. Right. And if it wasn't, then the conclusion is based in reality. And that doesn't mean there isn't a disordered process that can occur, right? The conclusion to doubt that the relationship is right or wrong could be normal. And you could respond to it excessively and disproportionately, right? You could spend hours on the internet. You could spend hours reassurance seeking, but the conclusion to doubt the relationship, the real uncertainty, mm -hmm. the true uncertainty is there. We all would have arrived there. The problem was how you responded. That to me is GAD. Again, to the degree that we're in, we, we have a disorder that is completely distinct from OCD. I think this is one of the more convincing ways of separating out these two phenomena. Mm -hmm. There's worry and the problem isn't necessarily the worry. It's your response to the worry. The worry was sound. The response was not because your compass was functional mm -hmm. and where it led you was correct. Right. But meaning the doubt was correct, even if it turns out to be wrong, right? Like to doubt whether I had cancer in the biopsy example, mm -hmm. that was a, a reasoned doubt, even if it turns out I don't have cancer, mm -hmm. right? That 50-50, maybe it is, maybe it isn't made sense. But in the second example with the lab result, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Most people don't end up there, mm -hmm. right? So again, when we zoom out, we try to sort of make sense of this from the vantage point that we're looking at the thing from, how we're looking at worries, how we're looking at obsessions, how we're trying to distinguish the two in a meaningful and empirical way, I think they are distinct. And I think inferential confusion helps us distinguish that, right? Like we don't have to get into the psychometrics and all that, but that there's clear research that suggests that high levels of inferential confusion are indicative of obsessional doubting, and they're quite separate from GAD, right? When they have these mixed anxiety groups, OCD groups, you know, they're different. They score differently, consistently differently. Inferential confusion has a lot of cognitive specificity to OCD, but not to other anxiety disorders. So when we're trying to pull the two apart, we can say obsessional doubting that is consistent with OCD is a kind of doubting that showed up, a kind of conclusion to doubt that showed up through a faulty compass that led you to a faulty destination. And then you acted as if the destination was where it should be. Right. And there's obviously a, a disordered process there. If I have a good working compass and it leads me to the right destination, but I overreact or I disproportionately react or I, right now that's a whole different thing because your reasoning and your conclusion were sound. Right. So I do think that if we're going to separate out worry that is excessive and problematic and we're going to call it a disorder. We're going to call it GAD. If we're coming up with a convincing way to distinguish worry from obsession, the construction of that experience, of that conclusion to doubt, of that destination matters a great deal. And right. that's not necessarily opinion at this point. I think there's a strong empirical basis to make that point. Yeah. I like the analogy overall, and I think it makes sense. I'm tracking with your reasoning, if you will. 
<laughs> on all of that. There are a couple of things I'm just I'm just thinking through for myself in terms of okay, one of the first things you said was because when we're talking about like with ROCD for example and it is it gets very it can get very muddy. You were talking about in the broader more meta like take a step back and an observational level you can go well, are we treating the right disorder? Or are we even using the right compass? You know, part of the conversation within the OCD field right now between ERP and ICBT is that these are very different instruments if we're talking about the compass, right? You know, and it's not to say one compass is wrong or not, but they're going to function very differently. And they're going to ultimately try to lead you to the place where you need to be. And so one of the distinctions you made was, well, if I have the compass and it's right and I get to the place where I need to be and that's right and I'm still feeling excessive concern or worry or whatever, however we want to define and operationalize this, then that is what's faulty, not the compass, not the location and the arrival space. If we took this from an ERP model, we might say, well, this person has some refractory OCD that is, this treatment isn't effective, and the treatment's not a cure, so it's not going to be effective for everybody. Both ERP and ICBT would posit that, certainly. So we could look at it and say, does this person have refractory OCD? Because they did the thing, and we helped them have a working compass to get there, and it's empirical, it's evidence-based, and we got to the location we needed to. And they're still like, well, it worked this time, right? But I don't know that it'll work the next time. There can still be excessive worry about the process that got them there, no matter how relative or how illogical it seems, right? And so I think the process of looking at, are we having a reasoning error? Are we having a, a, a compass or some kind of tool that is malfunctioning? That if we fix the tool, then we can get there and it resolves that. Well, that's pretty good measurement of OCD. If we get there and we're still stressed out of our mind with it, is that excessive? Is it disordered? Is it? I'm still not convinced that it couldn't be OCD. Do you follow? What I think this again comes down to how we have decided to define something yeah. as the phenomena itself, right? So it's that's why i think the devil is in how we how we conceptualize the phenomenon right yeah. i'm not concerned about compulsions that that's that to me that's not a compelling way of defining anything right right um there's simply deliberate responses intended to escape something right i mean that 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 itself tells us very little right right um obsessions and how they're constructed that that to me that everything is in there if there's going to be a distinction it's in the obsession and whether it's different from, say, worry or not, to warrant a difference in diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? But again, just the, the way I've been thinking about the way that feels persuasive to me. Mm -hmm. And when we take a look at how other models, and again, I don't want to be unfair to them, how they have so far been able to sort of define, operationalize obsessions, worry, it hasn't provided to me a convincing way of distinguishing the disorders. Right. But if we look at what the uh, inferential confusion process, right, the, here is a particularly unique, 
peculiar reasoning process, highly specific, at least in large amounts, highly specific to OCD, distinguishes itself factorially from other disorders, that's really interesting to me. And, and it tells us something about what we know about obsessions. So again, we are somewhat bound by the lens we're looking through. Right. Right. So what I'm saying is, is I've been persuaded by the inferential confusion lens when it comes to distinguishing obsessions from worries. If I took those glasses off and looked at it purely from an appraisal model, right, it would, I'd be hard pressed to find that distinction. You might find it in other areas like the metacognitive therapy people have in saying that worry is distinct from obsession in that it tends to be more verbally linguistic and not image-based OCD. There's more images. I think there's some data on that. There's more egocentric relationship towards worrying, the reaction to the anxious question. So there may be some distinguishing characteristics from, from that side. I don't find them as convincing <laughs> as the inferential confusion reasoning process where if we determine there's a high level of inferential confusion, we can spot the areas of inferential confusion and we can see how it has led you astray to a faulty conclusion, a faulty doubt, whether it be about your relationship, about your health, about mm -hmm. germs, about anything that influences how we treat it. Right. right. And so again, we're bound by the lenses that we look at it. Again, I come back to that example of the optical illusion images that used to be very popular in malls. If I look at the picture from this one lens, and it's the only lens I know, it's the lens I'm very familiar with, as the image is going to look like it presents to you. And until someone gives you another way of looking at it, gives you the 3D glasses to put on, or gives you an instruction to see another image that's in the other image, right? There's more than one image here, more than one way to understand this. Then when we see that, we go, oh, at least I, I did. Oh, there's a huge difference here, right? Mm -hmm. Between a worry, which I have found value in saying is a normal doubt where I don't treat the worry itself. I don't treat, right? I don't treat whether you do or don't have cancer as a thought problem. Mm -hmm. If the present moment gave you that genuine uncertainty, I treat your tolerance of uncertainty, maybe, mm -hmm. right? I treat your overreaction to the threat. I treat the way you're managing and coping, right? Mm -hmm. But that's different, right? That the, the conclusion itself was sound. I don't treat the conclusion as the problem. Whereas from an inferential confusion ICBT standpoint, that's where OCD begins. The conclusion was faulty, right? Mm -hmm. The reasoning that led you to it was faulty. And we need to get you a better, we need to help your compass work better. I'm trying to find a good analogy. It's like your, your compass works well everywhere else, except for in these particular woods that you're walking in because there's a power station drawing a different magnetic field. Anyway, so I'm, I'm feeling like I'm talking myself into, no, into money. I, you know, it, it, I, I appreciate it. And I think that both, I think there's a lot of good learning that can come out of vetting, not only vetting and kind of explaining where we're coming from, but learning other people's perspectives and being able to lean into that with a basis of evidence underneath it, the empirical base underneath it. 
And, you know, I was just thinking, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about going back to the kind of 3D image thing, which, yes, was all the rage. And and in, like, neon colors and stuff, right? Like, they were very colorful (laughs) things, right? But something that would be a modern-day example of that is we've seen, if if you're on Facebook, I'm old, so I do that more than any other social media probably. But there's the the dress challenge. Is the dress, I think it was white or blue or purple or something. I don't even remember the colors. But do you know what I'm referencing with that? Okay. So a couple, a year, two, three years ago or whatever, there was this viral thing. What do you see? There were different ones with sounds too and other things. What do you hear, right? And there was a camp that was like, this dress is this color. And you could tell them how to look at it a different way, but the brain would not switch to that other perspective, right? Because it was staying just that color. And other people were like, no, it's this color, right? And so sometimes there can be that piece that isn't initially seen and we can draw attention to something else and ah, a different image can pop out. But sometimes we also are like, nope. It's a white dress, it's a purple dress or blue, whatever it was. And we're not seeing that other perspective. So is that is that an example of my brain in this specific area, the power plant, my compass is malfunctioning? Or is it, no, actually, there isn't another way my brain is going to see this. And other people aren't going to see it the same way. So who's to say, who's to say which one had the right destination? Right. So, well, we're going to use the example of like that, that dress issue, right? Which depending on, on what you saw was something about, you know, you and something about you that caused you to see it one way and not the other way. Right. So which, which may or may not be something that is changeable. I don't know. But when we're talking about like reasoning, right? Like reasoning is tangible. Reasoning is changeable. Yeah. The reasoning in this case is only used in this area, but not any other area. So your reasoning actually is fine. Your compass works everywhere else. It just doesn't work here. What's up with that? Right? So, so I would look at this and say like, this isn't so much about any one sort of genetic makeup or brain processing like, I'm sure those things are relevant in some way to the picture of how OCD or GAD gets developed and whether or not you're more or less susceptible to medications or whatnot. I don't know that if we're trying to describe the phenomenon of an obsession, the phenomenon of, of a worry, that at least my knowledge, I'm unaware of any sort of brain processing difference that explains it. It's convincingly, oh, people with OCDs, their brain does this and people with GD, their brain does this, right? There's some evidence of what we call autonomic restrictors for OCD. I don't want to sort of go down a rabbit hole of that, but, but Borkovic and colleagues in the eighties and nineties found that people, when they were worrying as a result of seeing sort of distressing images, their left prefrontal cortex was really activated. A lot of blood flow went there. This is why they called it a verbal linguistic process attempting to neutralize or regulate the autonomic distress is reduce emotionality through a verbal linguistic process, Mm -hmm. which to me sounds like a compulsion broadly defined, but without getting into those other areas of neuroscience and neurobiology, which I'm not an expert, I would say that if we're just looking at 
what inferential confusion adds to the field and how it helps us explain a phenomenon. And does it expand our knowledge of how we understand the creation of an obsession? And does it do so in an empirical and replicated way? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And can we use that information about what we now understand about the creation of an obsession mm -hmm. and then have it tell us something about something that isn't an obsession? Mm -hmm. Right? Can we go, oh, well, this is what an obsession is. So what is this over here? This, if this doesn't meet the criteria of an obsession through this inferential confusion process, then what is that? Mm -hmm. And I think what we have left over, again, I'm painting with a overly large Broad. brush, Broad. would be a worry, mm -hmm. right? And that the worry itself, a question, what if I have cancer because my doctor found a bump and ordered a biopsy? Well, that's not the problem. That's not the pathology. That That right there isn't where the disorder lies. The disorder lies in how you react to that, how you try to cope or respond. And I see OCD as the disorder lies in the doubting mm -hmm. to begin with, mm -hmm. right? Again, I'm very influenced by that model, right. right? And I don't, one thing I will say is I don't think it's just a matter of taste or preference, right? Like, will everyone align with the ICBT explanation? clinically, like at the level of the patient-client interaction or the, 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 the client-clinician interaction? No. But is the phenomenon of inferential confusion, as mm -hmm. it explains right, that reasoning process, is it empirical? Yes. Is it replicated? Yes. Does it reliably discern OCD obsessions from worries? Yes. I think that ultimately where this is going to end up is our understanding of obsessions and how they're created and how they're diagnostically categorized to be influenced by that at some point in time, maybe years down the road, but I think that's where it's going to head. So how do I summarize everything I've said in a way that feels coherent? Where I was, that OCD and GAD were just differences of degree and not of kind, mm -hmm. was influenced by looking at it from a particular angle. Yeah. Right. And from that angle, that makes sense mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And from a treatment approach, it doesn't really matter because I can apply CBT ERP ACT to GAD, to OCD, and I can get probably similar results, right? But when I learn a new way of looking at the picture, mm -hmm. a new way of looking at obsessions, a new image appears, a, 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 a very important piece of data appears, one that I hadn't considered, one that I think meaningfully distinguishes where before I didn't see a meaningful distinction. Mm -hmm. And now I can go and say, oh, I do think that worry and obsession can be meaningfully distinguished through the lens of inferential confusion. And why do we care? Why does it matter? It matters not because I care about diagnostic categories. I could give a shit about diagnostic categories. I have no dog in that fight, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I don't over-identify with a diagnosis so much that I need it to not be something else, right? I, I, you can't have this because it's not as bad as mine. Like I, I'm not in that. Mm -hmm. I care about it from a treatment perspective. Right. 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 From a treatment perspective, the degree to which it allows us to open up new treatments or to better treat or more precisely treat an issue. And I think that's what it does. Right. Inferential confusion allows us to to look at obsessions and offer brand new treatment on obsessions, a more precise treatment on obsessions than we previously have had. And I think it can influence how we parse out and disentangle the web between what is worry and what is obsessionality, mm -hmm. right? But again, depending on your lens, it may or may not be how you approach the problem. But if you run into a client who isn't getting better, 
it could be instructional to right. say, maybe what I was framing as worry was actually an obsession. Mm-hmm. Or maybe what I was framing as an obsession is actually a worry, right? And, and maybe this is going to be meaningful to the client. Let's give it a whirl. Yeah. Yeah. And what I will say is, is even in kind of my own journey of discovering, I have OCD. Oh my gosh, I always called it anxiety, but it's actually OCD. Part of the reasoning I had was if I go and I dig deep enough, there are these compulsions. You're speaking to the don't get, don't get wooed by the presence or lack thereof compulsions for a way to gauge this. I think the analogy of is the compass working and you are ultimately going where you're going, but you're still feeling and holding this amount of distress, this worry, this concern that we would say that's an excess because we got to where we needed to be, right? That can be more of a distinguishing factor. And you're really talking about then, yeah, the difference between inferential confusion and how we are evaluating and defining obsessions otherwise, which not everybody is aware of ICBT. Or if they are, not everybody's wanting to see things from that approach. And so part of your own journey, part of getting to where you've gotten you had to buy in you had to conceptualize you had to be willing to look this way and go well i'll be damned there is another picture there it's not just the floating block coming at me no it's a dragon or whatever you're taking that posture and that has pretty much redefined it for you if i'm maybe summarizing it kind of i think that's completely accurate yeah i think I got persuaded by learning about a new model of OCD treatment and through understanding it more in depth and more in depth and really understanding inferential confusion, obsessional doubting, the the things that construct that, it to me was incredibly eye-opening to go, wow, so what we're saying here is, is that obsessions are in this realm, constructed in this particular way, right? They have this qualitative feature and and that leaves out these like because one of the things that icbt would tell you is that if it turns out that you find yourself working on a normal doubt Mm -hmm. right where in this example the doctor did think it could be cancer because they ordered a biopsy we don't do icbt with that why well because part of icbt is to help you realize that the doubt wasn't relevant or real in the here and now but that was a relevant and real doubt in the here and now. You're gaslighting the patient right. if you do ICBT on a normal doubt. Right. Right. Whereas, you know, if you just use sort of an exposure model or a behavioral model, you could treat the, the anxious phobic reaction mm-hmm. without that problem. Mm-hmm. But what could be left over, right, is especially in OCD, is that. This reasoning process still stands. This reasoning process is still at large, if you will, yeah. uncaught. It is still sort of, it's escaped. It's, it's going to wreak its havoc, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I've been very influenced by that. And it's fair to say that, that not everyone's going to adopt it. I mean, a lot of people don't adopt the behavioral explanation of OCD. There's still psychoanalytic and psychodynamic people out there who explain OCD in their own way. 
But what we're what we're talking about we here is we don't want is, to get on that rabbit trail, do we, Mike? <laughs> no, we don't. But to the degree that we have a a well researched, and there always need more. I agree. We always need more. But it adds a very interesting empirically based vantage point to the phenomenon of obsessions. And I can't unsee that, right? I can't. Someone taught me a magic trick, and now I understand how the magician makes you think he's floating. I can't unsee that. I now look at the creation of an obsession in this way that I can't unsee. And it informs how I understand worries now. Yeah. Because to me, if I'm going to do ICBT with OCD, yeah. I need to make sure it's an obsessional doubt. I need to make sure you have a, a faulty compass that led you to a faulty destination. And if you don't, I'm not going to do ICBT. What I'm going to do is some other treatment that works well for disproportionate, dysfunctional, poor coping strategies. Excessive. Right? And you you gave an example before, which is like, if our compass is correct and it arises at the destination we intended it to arrive us at, that perhaps we shouldn't have distress, right? Like we we got where we're supposed to go. But like in the biopsy example, you should be distressed because you don't know. Right. You, you still you landed where you should have landed. You should land with uncertainty because that's what reality gave you. Right. Reality gave you uncertainty. That's where you land. And in the time in which you don't have enough information to conclude anything else, you have to hang out. I used to say you, there's no comfortable seat on a picket fence. <laughs> but when you're left with uncertainty, that's where you have to sit because that's what reality has given you. And that is more true in GAD than it ever will be in OCD. Yeah. When you understand inferential confusion and how these doubts are arrived at and constructed. Yeah. Oh, I like the pick and fence analogy. I think in analogies and like that's, I enjoy that. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to get wrapped up here, but I'm wondering, Mike, because I want to think about it. And I, would you be open to us having a little bit of like a addended conversation after I have some time to chew on it, think through some of the things you were saying? Would you be open to that? Sure. Thank you. I love these kind of conversations. I need to chew on it a little more and I bet I'll have more questions. So we'd love to follow up. Not that I have to arrive at the same place as you, but I, I agree with the way you've routed the compass analogy and the picket fence. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure something out. Later. Thank you. I appreciate your time. All right, Nicole. All right. Care. See you later. Bye. Thank you for that. Okay. House for a conversation starter, a little appetizer. I like it. I like it. I mean, it's a lot to think about. And I really, I don't know about you, fam, but I really need some time to chew and digest information sometimes. And as much as I love these conversations that I get to help create here at the podcast, sometimes I'm just like, Hmm, I really need like to wrap my mind around that a little bit and and think on this a little bit more. So Mike graciously agreed to have a follow-up conversation with me. And so we're going to talk about this more next week. But for now, one of the things that kind of popped up in my head, and if you're newer with us, you, you'll, you'll learn quickly if you haven't already through the course of our chat that I think in analogies a lot. And so for me, I was thinking about riding a bike. And I think when people talk about something being like riding a bike, 
typically we're saying like once you get it, you never forget it kind of thing, right? But I'm thinking about it kind of in a, a little bit of a different way. Growing up, I had a 10-speed bicycle and it was red. And then my dad and mom had bought these like little clip things. They were kind of like cylinders, but you could kind of clip them on to the spokes of your wheels. And then they were like neon because my whole childhood was neon, I'm pretty sure. Lisa Frank and units and all the things. And so they had these neon things and some of them even had like the kind of cheapy, somewhat weather resistant, but not great at sticking uh, stickers that would go around these little cylinders and they were reflectors, right? So if it's getting dark, if it's dusk or dawn, you have more visibility. Someone sees, well, obviously some very neon force is going to pedal right by me. <laughs> like I was like a big old glow stick or something. But anyway, I I was thinking about the 10-speed bicycle. And so with the 10-speed or multiple speed bikes, for anybody that may not be as aware, and I'm not an aficionado, so this isn't exactly going to be understanding gears 101. But I was thinking about how you can shift into these different gears. You can shift into these different speeds, right? It was a 10 speed. So there were 10 levels based on different conditions and factors that you were experiencing in your environment. And I suppose that would be a little bit like a stick shift car. You know, this may come as no surprise as I get more into the story, but I am the only one in my immediate family that can't drive a stick shift because... We didn't have a stick shift car by the time I started driving, so it kind of makes sense. Uh, everybody else, like my brother and my sister and my parents, could all drive a stick. And so I never really learned that. But also, going back to the bicycle example, I never really learned, additionally, why, why do we have 10 speeds on the bike and when would it warrant or behoove us to shift from one speed to the other? I, I don't know. And presumably, I'm guessing that it was to help the bike function and work with the environment optimally. But you know what? Even though I didn't play and switch around those gears, really, I, I still learned how to ride my bike. And I rode it in all sorts of terrains. And it was great. I loved it. It, it functioned for me still. And whether I learned how to properly use those gears, those different speeds, I still could ride it anywhere I wanted. But it, it, it does beg the thought, doesn't it? Had I really learned how to properly use those gears, those different speeds, would have it created easier rides for me in life? Particularly at times maybe when there was some real resistance because it was in the wrong gear, perhaps, because of maybe terrain or weather elements or elevation changes, you know? I suppose the bike could have shifted gears and worked with me, <laughs> imagine that, versus creating greater resistance that I was able to overcome. I could push through, but I didn't have to. I didn't need to. I just learned to because that's what you do. You just keep pedaling. You just keep going, right? But presumably, if I had learned how to use those gears appropriately, 
Maybe I would have had more energy, more power when I needed it for an incline or more welcome rest and opportunities to coast when I could because I didn't have to work so hard to continue to maintain momentum so I had enough inertia and energy to push through the next hill. Now, again, I have a lot of fond memories of biking and They're some of my fondest memories, actually, as a kid, because I loved it so much. I loved riding the independence it could bring. I loved going uh, around the neighborhood so much faster than I could by walking or running. I loved the feeling it would bring me and the just, ah, the breath in my lungs. Everything felt a little better doing the bike. And I love that. So my bike functioned, even if I didn't play with the gears, it functioned and it was great. But you know, as an adult, I don't bike that often. We'd go on family bike rides. Sometimes I will pick the bike to vary up some cardio at the gym. But you know what? I don't bike that often today. So why don't I do it anymore, right? And I was just thinking, it's probably because at a certain point, it became enough work that it wasn't worth it. There was more resistance. I did have less energy, especially... Once I got of age in my professional life and I had a family, oh my gosh, where's the time? Where's the energy? Where's the rest? None of it existed. And so now I really don't ride my bike that often anymore. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, I want us to think about our bikes or our things where this really applies in our lives. For me, it's my bike. And today, my bike, I have a bike. We do family bike rides occasionally. The kids love it, much like I loved it when I was a kid. But now the bike I have and I use with the family is like a three-speed, I think. I think it's a (laughs) three-speed. I don't play with the speed still. You see? See how much I've learned. But I still don't really play with it. So I can tell you because I don't putz with it very often. And so I still really don't get what each speed or setting is really best for. But is it worth learning? Would understanding this, does figuring it out, if I'm using or not using the tools available, doesn't really make that big of a difference for me. I'm not doing these super, super long bike rides. I'm going with the kids. We're stopping often because, again, with the kids. And it probably doesn't make a big difference for me at this point. But could my practice of not changing the speeds because I know how to manage everything at the speed it is, is it similar to me managing the resistance and the load that my anxiety carried back in the day because I didn't recognize it as OCD? I mean, it's possible. So if that factor really is a factor, is it worth knowing why? Because, you know, that then changes how we bike if we know how to use and transition and lean into those different gear settings. It changes how we cope. It changes how we manage life. I mean, I would say yes. So that's why we're having this conversation and why I think it's a valuable conversation to have, not just as professionals, but as everyday people too. Because maybe we are spot on and we're using the gears and there are going to be hills and valleys and there are going to be resistance and coasting and that is what it is. I mean, we're, we're on track with that. But also, maybe we're not. And so having these conversations, understanding the function of these levers and speeds, it does seem worthwhile. 
Mike was talking about if the compass isn't broken, but we're just having more of this unproductive worry lingering, that helps him build a case for generalized anxiety. But for me, the jury's still out, and that's okay. Mike and I may agree on some things. We don't have to agree on all things. We're all different people. You and I can agree on things, and we can disagree too. So we're going to talk more about this next week because I needed some time to like really mull it over. And a giant thanks to Mike because time is precious, I know, and he's been so gracious to agree to come back and share some more. So we're going to dialogue a bit more about this next week. But for now, I want you to think about this. Whether it's a bike, like it is for me, or maybe it's a computer, or maybe it's like a remote control, like a TV control, right? Where you have to do all sorts of steps, and there's multiple controllers, and you press this, and you do this, and then you have to point this there, and it's not always intuitive, but you do it because that's what you learn gets the TV on, and it helps meet the function. It's doable. But could or wouldn't be easier or even more valuable? I think easy isn't necessarily the right word, but is it more valuable if maybe there was one or two things to do instead of using the multiple remotes with the IR receiver and a device that makes the power just come on? What if it could just be simplified down to pushing a button, to shifting a gear, to resolving a reasoning error or preventing a compulsive response? What if? So think about what your thing is for you this week, bike, remote, whatever. And you don't have to do or learn anything about it right now beyond that. I just want you to think, do I have a thing in my life that kind of functions like that? Identify what that thing is. And then I want you to come back next week because Mike and I are going to finish out this conversation. And then I just might have a challenge for you with, with that thing we uh, figure out this week. All right. So let's get to brainstorming, fam, and I'll look forward to seeing you in part two. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking with Mike and riding a bike. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com. <laughs>